This is episode number 25 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. We drop new episodes of this podcast every Monday morning. You can catch them on iTunes or thebeardedmarketers.com. Take a second to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Google+. Plus. If you're um, listening to us on iTunes, then you better submit a review. Yeah. Not us. you better, but we would appreciate it. <laughs> rate <laughs> us and review us. We know virtually everyone who's listening to this right now is listening to it on iTunes. I'm watching you right now. Do it. <laughs> All right. We got a good lineup of things to talk about tonight. Before we get started, though, we like to talk about what we're drinking to get in a good mood. So, Corey, what are you doing tonight? Tonight, I am doing some Jack Daniels, a little bit of lemon, and ginger beer. Goslings, we're still open for sponsorship if you'd like to send us cases. We'd <laughs> greatly appreciate it. Rob, what about you? I've gone down from the Macallan 12 or whatever I was drinking last week. I'm taking it down in the classy department. Just Jack and vanilla Coke oh, Zero. All right. So all right. I, I wouldn't call it fancy, but it's different. <laughs> Your beard grew enough for you so you can get off the uh, I'm letting straight. it go. I'm letting it go for Movember ahead of time. All right, so for tonight, we're going to be talking about how every action that you're asking people to take on your website requires a sale of some sort. We're going to be talking about email list segmentation. I think we have a good blog post from uh, MailChimp where we can talk about some of those things. We're going to be talking about value in social media. What are the right ways to be using those things and the different ways to be using the different ones? And finally, we're going to be talking about the last click trap in a complex sale. What does that mean? How do you do attribution with those complex sales? last topic so you right. stick around question marks at the end of every one of those <laughs> all right so let's jump again into it um you know for those of you who aren't aware we have the beardmarketers.com slash tune-ups we walk through websites Corey and i visually you can see us walk through websites and talk about how we would try to improve them optimize them for conversions simplify the messaging and, and just overall make them easier for users to use in the process of doing some of these i've noticed a, a familiar trend i think and that a lot of sites that maybe aren't necessarily trying to sell something immediately. So either trying to get a lead, trying to get someone to watch a video, even trying to maybe give away a free product or a free download, something like that. Make an appointment. Right. They're not actually selling me on the action they're trying to get me to take. So for example, one of the ones we were looking at recently, it was just a simple free account, free trial account. I think it was like 14 days, something like that. Yeah, all access. Right. But the landing pages, all the messaging and the marketing didn't actually tell me what I was actually getting. It didn't tell me what the product actually did. I mean, right. I knew the name and I knew that they were trying to get a free, get you to sign up for a free account, but I had no idea what it did. I didn't know its power. I didn't know examples of, of how people had used it in the past, what people have done with it and why I need to sign up for it. Yeah. I mean, you had to kind of be like Jack Sparrow to go on your treasure hunt to kind of find out what this right. actually was. They relied so heavily on this is a free trial. So why not that I said not because I wasn't really sold on why I should actually take this free trial. Now, if I've heard of the products before and I was sent there by a friend, that's different. But as an organic visitor that might have stumbled across you, we find this in many websites where people just don't feel or don't do a very good job of explicitly communicating a value proposition or doing the sale like you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it. It's that I think a lot of online marketers um, create products, processes, whatever it is, and don't actually think that, you know, just because it's free doesn't mean that anyone's actually going to take the time to do whatever it is you're trying to get them to do. Hmm. Um, well, I think it also has some effects later on as well. If you don't, If you don't tell me why I should care about this, 
maybe I sign up, maybe I'm bored or whatnot, but I'm maybe not that excited to go ahead and interact with it immediately. Like if you've done a, a good job of selling me on why I want this product, now I put in my information in the free trial and I go immediately to Gmail and I'm like refreshing, waiting right. for this email to come through because I want to hop in. If it's something where I'm kind of ho-hum about it, well, maybe I submit the information and I think, well, I'll get to it later on and maybe that later on never comes. So I think that sometimes if you don't sell it well enough, you still might get leads, but how excited are those leads? And does that affect your long-term value of those customers as well? Absolutely. I think what this stems from is a trend that you see with a lot of large, you know, big name brand familiar websites. For example, the Facebooks, the Twitters. If you go directly to those websites, there's nothing on that page that describes what is exactly going on. There's just a sign-up form and a login page. Sure. And I think a lot of companies see those paths and processes and, and you know, maybe think, okay, well, these guys are big name brands. They're doing it the right way. Well, no, Facebook and Twitter, everyone knows what that is, what it does, what they're signing up for. That works for them. All they need to have is their Facebook logo. Some, I think Facebook has just a picture of a big map or something like that. And I then they've rotated, uh, you know, a couple of times, but yeah, I mean, they have the social pressure for you right. to join. So their job is to really make it as easy as possible because people that come there are already pre-sold. For your business, that's just not necessarily the case. And I, and I do feel like that sometimes as marketers, we have to fight the, you know, I feel like a mantra that is uh, continually put out there is make things as easy as possible, simplify everything, get rid of steps. And while that can be beneficial in, in some cases, you can go too minimal and you've really eliminated your sale or why I should do something in your effort to have a clean and simple process you've really eliminated the value communication to me as a, as a potential customer or client or, or lead, whatever it might be. Another thing we saw on the website we were doing the tune-up for was um, a video on the landing page that had sort of, I guess its primary purpose was to do the sales for the website because the website itself wasn't primarily doing it. But I think even with a video, oftentimes marketers aren't just in the mindset of you got to convince somebody to even press play on that video or to make it past the first 5, 10, 20, 30 seconds of watching. You got to hit me with value immediately. I started watching that video and I didn't get anything out of it in the first 10 seconds. I'm gone. When the first 10 seconds of your video are an intro of, Hi, Welcome I'm to, Bob. <laughs> right. You know, I'm gone. I, I, I don't have time for that. People don't have time for that anymore. Sure. I'm, I'm on to the next one. Yeah. And, and I think there's, you know, in, in that case, there were many areas of optimization as well. I mean, if you're going to heavily rely on a video, simple things that matter, what is the thumbnail that you're going to get people to interact with? Excite me there to push play. What's the copy surrounding it? And like you said, how does a video actually construct it? Do you, I capture the attention? The stats are that you usually have two to three seconds to capture someone's attention on a page before, you know, most people will start considering bouncing out. The same is true for video and just consider that as well. So Assess some of your pages and think, as someone that's coming here with a problem, a potential client, or, or whatever it might be, do I do a, a great enough job at selling people to do an action? It doesn't have to be necessarily to purchase. Maybe it's to do a trial. Maybe it's just to continue past your homepage and look at your feature set and things like that. Because like Rob said, every action that you're asking people to do, there is this thought process that they're going through in their mind 
am I going to get the value that I expect from this page? Is it going to be worth my time to continue on? And do I think that the solution is in the next step or next page? Yeah, absolutely. Quick shout out while you were sort of talking about page loads and things like that. We do have some research up on the beardedmarketers.com slash research. You can look at some stats on bounce rates on video load times. So for instance, um, I think the stat is something like if your page takes more than two or three seconds to load, a quarter of your visitors have already left. So some interesting numbers on that. Just a quick uh, infographic you guys can check out at thebeardofmarketers.com slash research. So let's keep moving on. This week, I came across a really good blog post from MailChimp. Even if you don't use their service, I think that their blog is definitely worth checking out. They have some informative posts every once in a while. Uh, and this one really struck my eye because... I think that this topic in particular intimidates a lot of people. So it was really focused on email list segmentation. So what do we mean by that? You know, a lot of companies have lists of people that they can contact on email and doing the consulting that I do and interacting with so many businesses, very few of them conquer list segmentation in a very thoughtful way. And what do we mean by that? Other than this bulk amount of people that we can contact, who are some of our big advocates? Who are people that always open up our emails? Who are people that might be big brand ambassadors or people that we can identify through some other tools that have a lot of followers or things like that, you know, VIPs, so to say, and really looking at our lists and then to maybe segment on what are specific things that we might talk about that are relevant to only part of our audience and what we can do to potentially only send certain messages to them or craft our emails in a, in a very intelligent way. And I think a lot of people get intimidated by that because we've all in the back of our minds run into web pages where we are submitting our email address, but on some websites, they're going to ask us like 30 questions. And mm-hmm. that's what they're doing. They're segmenting their list based on basically every parameter about your life, social security number, (laughs) do you have uneven eyebrows, a bunch of random things. And a lot of companies get greedy with that. uh, But that's not actually how you have to segment your emails. One of the companies that I work with sells car parts. And we actually do list segmentation by the products that you actually shop on or the products that you buy. Uh, We do all that on the back end and we'll dump you into different lists based on your shopping behaviors. And then when we release a product, we know the exact audience that's going to be interested in it. And we don't get people on our list that get fatigued with messages that are non-relevant to them. So email list segmentation can be a lot smarter than just asking people 30 questions about their life and then attributing that to a person. So back to this article... They talked about segmentation in seven different ways, and I thought a lot of people could learn some things about how they're talking about segmenting their list and how we can use them in a more valuable way. So the first one was VIPs, and you're going to have to determine on how you value your email list followers and who is the most important to you. But they talked about here whether that might be people that are of a certain stature in a company or work for a certain company that you want to outreach to, or maybe do some lead nurturing with, but establishing who your VIPs are and then segmenting your list. Maybe you want to send them a special offer or a very personalized message, really utilize those segments much differently than you would your general subscribers. Also, you might want to look at how do you divide up your groups within your email list, whether that's people that are interested in getting tips and tricks, whether that's people that are interested in new product releases and things like that. How do you understand what people's real 
goals are for signing up. I think a lot of companies miss when they offer newsletter signups. What are people expecting with that? A lot of companies just have a bulk sign up. Here's our newsletter. Well, what are people expecting with that? And maybe how do we craft that? Uh, Whether that is, like I said, product releases or new webinars that are live or things like that. How do we interact with our people and understand when they sub, you know, sign up for a newsletter, how can we deliver them the content that they expect? Yeah, I think that's an important thing. I was actually been recently trying to clean out my inbox and looking at all the emails I get. And I was unsubscribing from a bunch of lists. And I was surprised at how many ways some of these people segment their list. You know, you'd have to go in and click unsubscribe and, and uncheck like 20 boxes right. that they were trying to group you into all these random little newsletters and tips and tricks and all this other junk. I think a takeaway from that is, are those really relevant? Are those needed? Sure. Is that a good way to segment your customers having those 20 different possibly irrelevant things that they didn't even realize they were being grouped into? Right. And maybe it falls under to the uh, topic of, you know, dying by data overload as well. You Mm -hmm. know, are you getting too greedy with your segmentation and you're kind of paralyzing yourself with not knowing how to act because you have so much data, not knowing how to interpret that and really how to handle it well. So that's a good point as well. You know, how many segments do you have and are they actually really necessary? Do they serve a purpose? A couple other ones that I would recommend as well. For some of the tools out there, you can actually search your lists uh, and create alerts. So you might be interested in people that are signing up from your list for certain companies. Maybe that's press. Uh, You really want to get in front of people that can help spread your brand. Maybe it's even competitors. Maybe you want to send them dupe messages (laughs) that aren't actually what you're sending out to your, uh, (laughs) your regular list. So think about how you might can create alerts or segment people based on ones that you want to interact specifically with. Like I said, maybe the press is a good one, maybe certain blogs that you know you can get some traction in or your competitors, like I said, send them crazy emails and think that uh, you're doing something that you're not. That's a free one for this week. <laughs> and then lastly, the last two I wanted to cover is super fans. So depending on your email service, you can actually get metrics on what are the people in your list that are opening most of your messages and maybe even acting on them? Not only are they opening up your emails, but they're actually going into your website. They're engaging in some of your content and digesting it. You might want to actually send specific emails just to those people uh, and try to maybe push them over the hump if they're not converting or What about if you send them a special social message on helping us spread the word? Maybe you even want to send them a special offer, like get your next purchase or we're going to bump up your account if you tell 25 of your friends and they like us or something like that. You you know who your brand ambassadors and people that like your brand are. So let's send them a specific message. And the last one that I will say is I would definitely come up with some time constraints and bucket your new followers in their own segment. You might want to do a special message to them based on an email to further explain something that maybe your longtime uh, subscribers already understand or they understand the vernacular that you use. Or, you know, there's a lot of different purposes. But for new people that you're kind of nurturing in this list, if you're going to send them a very standardized message, you might want to mix it up a bit and help them maybe understand the benefits of who you are. Why should they stay around? 
uh, or explain some of the more unique features that you might email out every once in a while or give them some tips and tricks on how they can better interact with you. Yeah, I mean, another way you could do that is not sending, maybe if someone just signed up, don't send them the standard newsletter you're sending to everyone else at the same day, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of filter those people out of some sendings for a while. I think those are all interesting things. I think for the VIP thing, the social one's an interesting angle you can take because that's obviously going to work for people who are ambassadors who are really interested in everything you're doing. At the same time, maybe you don't want to be sending that same message to other people because maybe that's pushes them over the edge. I'm unsubscribing. I don't really like these guys. Why are they sending me? Why are they bugging me with this kind right. of stuff? So I don't want to interact with them on Facebook or Twitter. Right. Exactly. That's interesting. Which, by the way, if you do want to be a VIP on our list. <laughs> <laughs> like that segue. Yeah. Hit us up on the website. We do have a newsletter with MailChimp, as a matter of fact. So, all right, moving on. Let's talk about a blog post from our friends over at Marketing Sherpa. We can call them friends, maybe. I don't. Okay. We'll call them friends. <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't work with them as much as you do. So. <laughs> well, I am. If they're friends with you, then they're friends of mine. <laughs> they they do have the Marketing Sherpa Lead Gen Summit in San Francisco at the beginning of October next okay. month. I will be there for that for a, an entire week. So if you're listening to this and happen to be going to that event, I'll be wearing... the man behind the logo? I'll be wearing my huge beard and my Bearded Marketers uh, website logo. So right. anyway, so this blog post from them is about social media marketing, specifically about what's the value that you are trying to present to the people who you are trying to get to interact with you, if that makes sense. So like the strategy. Right. You know, what is the reason we're giving people for wanting to follow us? And continue following us And continue. Yeah, exactly. So that was basically the premise of it, sort of thinking from that mindset of what am I, what kind of value am I giving the people who are following me? And not thinking of it from an aspect of, I'm, I'm obviously using social media to try to sell things. I mean, come on, I'm a company. That's what we're doing here. But not just from that angle, also from the other end of the spectrum. How can I, I guess, help people, which is maybe a corny way of looking at it. But certainly something that I think maybe a lot of companies don't really think about when they think of social media. They don't actually put the time and effort into that. They just tweet out the, the latest sale or whatever the heck they're sure. doing, right? So they gave a couple examples a do and a don't. So the example they gave for the do is is a local supermarket. Publix, supermarket they got the best here. subs you've ever had. Publix, yes, they're well known in the south for a lot of interesting things. The deli is amazing, uh, but the example they took from their um, Facebook page was and a recipe that they had sort of sent out as yeah. a post, which is something Publix does. They have like recipe booklets at the stores. Anyway, obviously the recipe is going to be filled with products that they sell in their mm-hmm. store and where you can find them in the store and things like that. So in a roundabout way, selling things, but at the same time, primarily trying to provide value to people sure. who are following them. Cloaked. Right. And so that was an example from the do list. An example from the don't list was a post that was from, I believe it was Abercrombie and Fitch. Now, are they the ones that have the cologne bombs that when you walk in yes you almost pass out you know when you're getting close to one in the mall because you can smell it <laughs> you smell can smell the bro pulling smell. your nostrils <laughs> towards right. it um right so it was a post from their facebook account that was basically just a picture of some new hoodies they were rolling out and a i don't know a basic tagline that was something like hey check out our new hoodies from Abercrombie and fitch like here's a link to check out the sale so that was an example from their don't list and the reasoning for that was sort of that it wasn't providing maybe direct value to people it wasn't helping them solve a problem it was just trying the company was just trying to sell things gotcha so i think on the surface that makes sense but i think if you dig deeper you have to sort of get to the reasoning behind why people are following you and this yeah. is something we've talked about in the past yeah i don't know the exact podcast number but uh 
and I forgot the research firm that did it, but you know, there's quite a bit of research out there that people follow companies for different reasons. And I think that a lot of times companies have influence over that. You know, where do we ask people to like us or what do our social channels actually look like and, and why people interact with us? Do we post a lot of coupons on there? Well, that's maybe what people's expectations are right. uh, in different things. And, and what was interesting about the research is even people in the same verticals, I think the exact example that we talked about was H&M and Zara were, that are in the clothing space. This company found that, you know, a lot of people follow uh, Zara for why they're developing new products or more about like product releases, things like that. Whereas people that follow H&M are actually more concerned about like coupons and things that are vastly different than Zara. Even though they work in a similar space, people's motivations are different. And I think that's what you're kind of getting at is you can come up with a generalized hypothesis, but why are people actually following your social channel might be a little bit different in their expectations and what you're delivering might actually be relevant to them. Right. I think this is such a complicated problem that you can't just surface wise try to dissect. So for example, I may be following Publix and not care about recipes. You know, I'm on the internet. I can go to allrecipes.com. I can Google a recipe. Alton Brown. I can I, go like right I, yeah. now and you know it's going to turn out right. I can go to a chef's website. I can, you know, I can watch YouTube videos on how to make something. Why would I follow Publix for recipes when there are so many other channels for that? I maybe just be following Publix for their buy one, get one free sales when that Mm -hmm. stuff is or, you know, whatever other kind of coupon sales, new products, things like that, that may interest me. And I don't care about recipes. On the flip side, though, for Abercrombie and Fitch for their don't example, at least in this post, I may be following them, which, by the way, I never would follow Abercrombie and Fitch. Rob has his fingers (laughs) crossed right now. I, you know, the people who are following them may love the fact that new they posted products. about those new hoodies. Right. That's why they follow Abercrombie and Fitch, you know, Facebook feed. Like the new threads yeah. immediately. School's, school's, you know, school's back in session. I got to get those new hoodies. I got to get that goods. You know, I got to be <laughs> hot. expecting. I got to be wearing the new hotness when I go to class right. and not the old and busted. So I think that, you know, you mentioned Zara and some of these other companies. It's, it's a lot of like roundabout reasoning. You can like back out why you think people are following you. Mm-hmm. For example... If you post coupons all the time, well, of course, people are going to say, I follow you because of the coupons. Because that's what you do. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. So if you didn't do coupons, they would just say they follow you because it is whatever it is that you actually do on your on your Facebook account. Mm -hmm. And for different brands, these things change all the time. Exactly like you said, even people in in the fashion industry, I know there are brands that don't have coupons. So I don't follow them because of the coupons. I follow them because maybe I just want other people to know that I like them. Yeah. People it's, see that I follow them. Ooh, he must be cool. Right. It's a very complex issue. So I just wanted to point out that, you know, I think on the base level that makes sense and that's a good takeaway. I think the do's and don'ts maybe, you know, misread how things are maybe actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but not understanding maybe what their audience is and what they're right. trying to do with it or why that audience is even there in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So get thinking about your social media yeah. accounts and how, what you're well, doing. Well, and, and again, I would say that, you know, we, we talked about it. How do you influence your your audience as well. And that might become why, what they're expecting and how can you potentially shape that into what you want? All right. So moving right along, we talked about this in the beginning. It was a little vague, the last click trap in the complex sale. So what we wanted to talk about here is we run with a a few partners that potentially run a long-term sale or a complex sale. And one of the things that becomes tricky about that is the possibility that a customer or a lead source or whoever it might be 
might touch multiple marketing campaigns. You know, they might hit one of our display ads. They might want hit one of our PPC ads. They might hit a whole host of different marketing avenues that we have. So how do we understand where to spend our money? If I'm a bank, I'm buying display ads. I might do mailers. I might do PPC. And I might even do paid placements on TV. Well, how do I know where to spend my money where maybe... What I can track is PPC clicks straight to leads. So from a reporting standpoint, I see that most of the leads I get come directly from these PPC ads. So on surface level, it looks like, well, when people click PPC ads, they convert the best or the most. So we should dump all of our money into that. The problem that comes into play is really understanding Sometimes a sale takes iteration or it takes continual messaging to eventually win over that sell. You know, sometimes you're just trying to plant that seed. You're trying to get that brand awareness to where later on you can do the heavy lifting or you're really nurturing someone along the path. And if I just attribute that last touch as what's generating that sale, a lot of times I can end up spending most of my money where it's actually not providing the biggest input. So I was listening to actually a bank VP here in Jacksonville, and he spent a lot of time with surveys and talking to customers. And they found that even though it didn't generate most of their last click conversions in the way of new accounts or leads, display ads were actually very important to their marketing mix and made a big impact in people that they were later on ready to convert. So what I wanted to propose to everyone on the podcast is assess many actually conversions online today, you touch people in multiple ways. And so how do you look at that? Number one, do you even look at that? So the first step in understanding what is our marketing mix is making sure you can somewhat measure that. So there's a lot of measurement tools out there. Even base level free ones like Google Analytics can give you different touch points for what you can potentially measure. It's relegated to a lot of the advertising partners that Google has. But even in free tools like Google Analytics, if I'm running a banner on another site and PPC and all these things, Google Analytics, as long as a person keeps their cookies, I can tell that a person coming to my site has actually been exposed to my brand three different times before they came here and understand that, you know, my marketing message is more complex than just that last thing that got them to the site and and converted. And so actually Google has a a really good article that we're going to uh, tweet out that goes over the different models that people should really take a look at. So by default, a lot of people use last attribution because they feel like that might be the most reliable. You know, I can tell that this email newsletter converted this person. Well, really, it was more of a process, potentially. It was, you know, a four-step process where step one and three, you're, you're totally ignoring but we're actually very critical into that final sale. So there's also last non-direct click. So it ignores the direct visit. So people that typed in, let's say beardmarketers.com, it ignores any conversions that happen from people typing in our exact brand name. So it looks at what is the last non-direct interaction that we've had at them. Now that can be valuable, but I think it's still, depending on how long it takes for your sale and how complex it is, you still might be missing a lot of the picture, but is a good step in the right direction. But again, I think you're still missing some of the picture there. So another last AdWords click. So those are for people that might be using PPC. It doesn't have to be just AdWords. It can be Bing. Yahoo. There's tons of ad networks out there. First interaction. So this is an interesting model that looks at 
What was the first thing that brought them onto the site? And what really started their interaction with you? Which is an interesting way to look at it, because if they're continually coming back to you, it's perhaps that first interaction that really got them going and might be really critical to that sale. What is actually bringing people, getting them interested in you, and continuing that process and making them apt to continually interact with you. And it actually might be very important for you. So an interesting model that I think some people should maybe take into consideration. But there's also a linear model, which looks at, here is our marketing mix. 50% of our of our customers hit these three marketing campaigns or three interaction points, and we're going to value them all the same. So even though AdWords is generating most of our conversions. Maybe we're an auto mechanic shop and we can tell that most of our leads come from PPC directly. Well, actually we run display ads on our local news channel and we also put a placement in our local coupon magazine. We know that people are coming from all of these, but most of the conversions come from PPC people searching for our our company. We should really value everything equal because we can see that all those interactions are actually contributing to the conversion. And we don't really know necessarily what's most important. So we're all going to weight them the same. I think that that's one step in the right direction. Number one, you understand what is it that's leading to our sale, but you're also giving more credit to things that might not be main players, uh, but that are actually contributing to that sale. And then the last thing that I'm going to talk about, spending some time to understand your customers and understanding what interaction point truly valuable to them. Is it these... Maybe you do some video marketing on YouTube and that provides like a big impact to people and that makes you memorable and they might convert in other parts of the processes, but in actually sitting down and surveying some of your users, a lot of them are actually pointing to this YouTube video that they saw or this interrupt that you're running. And I would recommend a lot of companies actually take the time to continually survey and understand to your customers What is providing that big impact? And then associate how much you should spend on your marketing campaigns in a truly thoughtful way instead of just looking at, well, email is generating most of our leads, so that's where we should throw most of our money in. In today's world where we're interacting with people on so many fronts because we can, it's important to understand really where can we spend our smart dollars. So how are you doing that? Yeah, I think this is just such a huge and complicated issue that's only really started to come into the maybe more internet marketing mainstream in the last year or so. I think this is just another example of the clash of sort of data versus the way it used to be done was a lot of this. We knew that touch points mattered, all these things mattered. Then everybody got Google Analytics and only started paying attention to the last interaction sure. and started spending money based on that and forgot about all the other steps, like you were saying. I mean, the branding, the having the banner ads in people's faces, the email touches all the time, those or what helped build that sale and the last interaction wasn't the most important thing. I think for a lot of companies, you know, maybe who only have one or two different kinds of products, they can settle maybe on one kind of approach for this. But for some companies, they're maybe going to have to use last interaction for maybe their cheap product or their email newsletter sign-up action. We use that to measure that performance. And we have to use the linear model for our big, big product sale that we actually have to perform. And so this introduces a really high level of complexity, I think, to some people's marketing programs that maybe they're not expecting they have to take. And there's a lot of art to it and not a lot of science. And I think people are starting to realize that internet marketing isn't just about exact numbers Mm -hmm. and exact everything. There is a little bit of art to it. Sure. So absolutely. 
I like to consider myself an artist, so I'm <laughs> glad you said that. All right, so that's it for episode number 25. This has been, a, I think, a really good episode. So yeah. if you have a topic for us to talk about that you have been really scratching your head about or just stressed, you don't really know where to turn, probably between Rob and I, we have some experience in it. Give us a call, 904-270-9603, or visit us at thebeardmarketers.com. Drop us a contact. Tell us a little bit about it and we'll include it on an upcoming episode. Also, check out the site. we got a lot of new content out there, so tell us how you like it. Submit your own site for a tune-up. Check those out. But again, this has been Rob and Corey, and we'll see you next week.